This episode is a mic swap. It's a concept I came up with back in 2017 at the very start of Shareable. I thought, what if I shared the mic and let my guests become the host and I became the guest of my own show? This simple swap has allowed my guest hosts to take the conversation in unique and unexpected directions, producing some amazing one-of-a-kind conversations that I never could have planned. The concept is so good, in fact, that plenty of my podcaster friends have taken the idea for themselves. So, I hope you enjoy this episode of Mike Swap. All right, welcome to the Shareable Podcast. I am Julie Pham, and I am here today with Jeff, Jeff Gibbard. Can I start that again? Yeah, if you'd <laughs> okay, like to, okay. it's your show. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. Hi, welcome to the Shareable Podcast. I am Julie Pham, and I am here interviewing Jeff Gibbard today. And um, so today we are going to talk about, I know that, Jeff, I know you normally like to talk about curiosity and how shareable is, is fueled by curiosity. And so we're going to talk about curiosity and how respect and curiosity are interwoven. Uh, for guests, I wrote a book called Seven Forms of Respect, A Guide to Transforming Your Communication and Relationships at Work. And I want to understand, Jeff, how you think about respect. And so the first question I'm going to ask you is who in your life and what experiences in your life have influenced how you think about respect? Um, it's tough to not go the obvious route of saying my parents, because I think that's the first place that we all learn about respect and what respect means. Um, and I feel very fortunate to have grown up in an environment where respect didn't mean pay me deference because of my authority, but instead means respect me because I respect you. I respect your boundaries. I respect you as a human being with your own thoughts and opinions and ideas. So I grew up in an environment where I don't know if I was ever formerly kind of instructed in what uh, respect actually means, but I kind of gathered from being around my parents that respect was about um, it was it was sort of a subcomponent or a, a related component of love, which is that you kind mm. of allow people to be who they are. You give them the um, how should I put this? Not like the privilege of it. Like you just you honor that they are sentient, autonomous human beings of their own, and they have their own path that they're going to be on. Um, and that's kind of just what I gathered from from growing up, really. So, Jeff, what are some examples of that? What are some early memories of how your parents modeled that for you? I think one that's really present for me is the way that my dad encouraged me. Um, mm. And it, it it it's a slight um, difference in the way that my mom did. Um, so when I was a kid, uh, I'm five foot five, mind you. Uh, mm -hmm. And while I am quick and reasonably athletic, the dreams of being in the NBA were probably a further off reality than I had truly anticipated. Um, but that never stopped my dad from always being there and always supporting and always, mm. um, you know, being there to, um, to cheer me on and root for me and just be real with me, but also be encouraging. Like he never shot down my dreams. Uh, and he kind of was of the belief, like that I'll figure it out. He respected me to make my own decisions to kind of draw my own lines. Um, and that was, that was kind of one very present way. The other way that I think on his side that I learned it from was that when my parents split, um, I had two very different environments growing up. I had my dad's house and I had my mom's house. And I lived with my mom, uh, you know, full time. And I went out to my dad's on the weekends and in the summer. Um, and 
in my mom's house, like we would eat dinner and watch the TV and we didn't really talk as much. And it was just kind of like the day to day. Whereas at my dad's house, there were some very kind of clear rules. And there was an expectation that all of us, me and my two stepbrothers would follow those, those rules. And as long as we kind of stayed within them and they weren't like ridiculous rules, it was like, you know, let your elders get dinner first and like mm. set the table and like basic things like that. And it was more about like understanding and honoring the roles of the house. And it was a mutual thing. Like they respected our boundaries and gave us space of our own and the ability to do things that we wanted. And we honored their rules in their home. Um, so I think it was really about learning about like mutual, uh, that, that respect is a two-way street, not not just a one-way thing that's paid. And I think that that's a big difference in how I started to hear about it when I started working, that like, you'll respect me means you'll just listen to me without question. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so was that hard to go between the households and to essentially to switch to have certain kind of expectations with your mom versus with your dad? A little bit. Um, you know, I really actually appreciated the the structure and the boundaries um, because it kind of made life much easier to follow. It was like, there aren't a lot of rules. There are mm-hmm. just these handful. So just kind of follow those. Whereas at my mom's house, it it was a little fuzzy at times, kind of what was expected. Um, mm-hmm. It was kind of a more of a moving target, whereas it was very, very clear out of my dad's house. So I, you know, I wouldn't say it was super hard, but like it, it definitely, I, I will always remember that there was a difference between the two environments and that I preferred being out at my dad's house. How old were you at the time when you started having that switching? Um, 12 to 15. It was in that range. So like my parents split when I was like nine or 10 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then they both got remarried and and there's the kind of the two households. But it wasn't until I was in like my early teens that I was like, man, these are two very different environments. Mm-hmm. It What you just said reminded me of my, uh, so in the seven forms of respect, there's one of them is called acknowledgement. And so what you're describing about with your dad is, is I think of that as, as acknowledgement. I also had that with my own, my own dad too. It's just very much about, um, the encouragement and the, the praise and that you can do this. And so, um, and that, that can, it's modeled for us. Right. So there are these, there are these role models or these behaviors that we follow. And then they're the ones that we are like, Oh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> you actually taught me not how to do that. I mean, I'll give you an example. My mom was always late picking me up from school. I mean, she was very busy working and yet I felt a lot of shame. I felt like, man, like when I grow up, I'm not going to do that. And, uh, and so that actually, now I actually get anxiety around time and around punctuality. And, and so it was a, the opposite. Did you have any examples? Maybe, maybe not with your family, but maybe in other parts of your life where you learned like, Ooh, I will not do that. That is not respectful. Ooh. Um, yeah. I mean, just, just for the sake of varying things up, I'll switch off family. And I'll say that so much of what I learned about leadership um, and and I think a really critical part of leadership is how one manages respect, how one mm-hmm. deals in the term of in the ideas of respect. And my early career was, you know, uh, after the basketball thing fell through, uh, predictably, mm-hmm. and some of my <laughs> other big ambitions fell through, I found myself kind of in this waiting period where I was like, well, I'll work in restaurants for the time being and I'll, I'll figure out what I'm going to do with my life. So I was a server and I found that in restaurants, there was a certain what I called restaurant manager syndrome later on, but it was very much like the 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 prototypical bad boss often existed in either retail or in restaurants. And what I noticed was 
um, and it really directly intersects with respect is what I had mentioned earlier, which is respect me because I'm authority. And mm-hmm. I I never actually throughout my entire life, like going back to the the youngest I can remember, um, respect for authority, as in respect because authority mm-hmm. was never a thing that I, I, I never had that feature. It was just, it was like a missing part. If it was supposed to come standard with humans, like I didn't have it. Mm-hmm. So when I would be in work environments where I was expected to respect quote unquote someone uh, or pay them deference simply because that never computed because for me, respect was something that you earned or that you showed that you were worthy of. Like you made good decisions where you showed that you cared about me. You made decisions where you had my well-being in mind, where you showed that you didn't think you were better than me or condescending. And in restaurants, I found a lot of the time the managers that I dealt with expected that they could just boss people around and we were mm-hmm. supposed to just listen to them. And that never that never sat well with me because you know, if we weren't feeling well, we were expected to come in. Or if, you know, we made a mistake, that was a problem, but we didn't get very much praise when we like crushed it. And as someone who always had very high sales and Mm -hmm. knew about food, that really upset me. So a lot of what I learned about where I didn't want to model things and what kind of got baked into my leadership philosophy is about acknowledging people and recognizing them and appreciating them, but also not commanding that they bow down to my authority, that, that I have some sort of anything about it, but rather that we're all on the same team. Like we're in this together. So maybe it's, it's the hierarchy thing. I, mm-hmm. I think what I kind of took away was I don't like hierarchies. I don't like them almost anywhere. And I, I think what I took away was any time where I felt either in my childhood or at work or anywhere where someone was trying to um, alter my behavior purely as a function of their title or chart authority, whatever, um, it never sat well with me. And I said, I won't do that. That's not going to be how I lead. I'm going to lead by by encouraging and inspiring and getting people to want to change direction because it benefits them, not because it benefits me. Mm. Thank you so much, Jeff. I imagine, so what kind of student were you then with, with teachers? If I could, like, was that difficult? <laughs> They're just going to um, do this, do that. <laughs> so, so ADHD kid already going to be difficult for, for um teachers and then not knowing back then, but learning later on them on the autism spectrum, there was just such a, a bevy of different things going on with me that I couldn't verbalize or didn't understand. So I had teachers that basically I had, I had two different types of teachers. Um, I had the teachers that absolutely loved me. Mm-hmm. They absolutely, like we just, we got along, they saw potential in me. They wanted to nurture it. They wanted to encourage it. And then I had the teachers that basically were like, he's really smart, but he just doesn't apply himself and he drives me nuts in class. So mm-hmm. like there was the teachers that really were frustrated by me, aggravated by me, uh, constantly telling me that I was either lazy or not living up to potential or whatever it might be. And then I had the other ones who saw the promise in me and saw that all they had to do was just treat me a little differently. And realistically, if I think back on all of those teachers, the difference was, is that is how we were speaking to one another. The teachers where I felt like we were speaking eye to eye, where they Mm -hmm. were like, they weren't trying to hold anything over me. They were there as a guide. They were there to show me something and to encourage me to find something that really motivated and excited me. Those teachers, we crushed it. We had a great relationship. The teachers that walked in as if they were the king of the castle or queen of the castle, that they, it was their classroom and I had to fall in line. Those, I just never, I just never did well in those environments. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's making me think about how, so one of the forms of respect is called procedure. And this is about following the established norms and rules. And so in some parts, I mean, when you were describing having the dinner table, having, there were certain, there were certain expectations and you, you like that structure. And yet there could also be that way, way too much structure. Cause I've also heard from people who say, I really appreciate that structure. And I grew up in a military household. 
And there was a lot of clarity there. And because I, I definitely think that it's not either, nothing is like good or bad. It just is. And it's also kind of practicing curiosity to figure, to ask ourselves, huh, how do I want to be respected and why? And so what you're, that the relationships you're describing with your teachers uh, seem to kind of mimic the relationship that you had with your dad, where you said he was just really encouraging of you of how, just to be you versus that kind of authoritarian, the the restaurant manager, just, hey, just do this. Yeah. Um, and it can be interesting how there are actually certain patterns in industries too, right? Where it's just, oh, you're, these are hospitality workers. They need to be told exactly what to do versus having creative freedom to do yeah. things. Are you replaceable is a big part of that. Yeah. Right? Like if yeah. you're perceived as replaceable, they're going to treat you as if you're replaceable and that you should just follow rules. And if you don't, we'll just replace you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what are, I mean, I, I also like to think that we belong to multiple cultures, communities, and identities all at the same time. Sometimes yeah. people will ask me, oh, well, do women experience respect in certain ways? Or do Asians experience respect in certain ways? Or And it's just, well, yes, there's cultural influences. And yet at the end of the day, there's always just us. And we are a mix of all of these different cultures. Mm-hmm. So Jeff, for you, what are, what are, what, what do you think are different parts of your identity, your, your community? I mean, I know for me, being a firstborn is big <laughs> for someone who grew up in the Pacific Northwest is really big for me. Someone who's bicultural, like growing up Vietnamese in the U.S. What about for you? What are, you know, what do you think are different aspects of your identity that influence how you think about respect? Yeah, that's such an interesting question, especially because like at first glance and, and really predominantly I'm a white dude, right? Like, so as a white dude, I've gone through life as a white male and, um, that definitely shapes things. Um, but there are, and, and I, I don't want to list any of these other aspects of my identity as being like things that marginalized me in any significant way, uh, because I've had a pretty straight run of things, but I will say that I, I very much feel my neurodivergence has been a major mm. influencing factor in how I see things and how I think about respect and how I think about, you know, justice and how I think about any number of different uh, categories. Um, I grew up, uh, I was raised Jewish. Um, my mother was Jewish, but my dad was atheist. Mm-hmm. And I, I never really found much interest in religion. I, I, it didn't really gravitate towards me, but my mother expected me to go through and get bar mitzvah and do the whole thing. But like it, it never really mattered to me. I just kind of did it for her, but I didn't really care. Uh, mainly I just wanted to have my Sundays back in play because I was a kid. Um, so, you know, that was another one that, but even, even though it didn't resonate with me, I still think that growing up Jewish, you have a certain, uh, perspective about the world that Mm. you're, you're, um, there's community to it. There's also just the backdrop of the Holocaust and all of the impact that that's had on on Jewish people and and just the the legacy of um, issues that that Jewish people have faced throughout history. So there's a you know there's a little bit there that I kind of grew up with and I didn't directly necessarily face all that much of my life, but it's something that still was present for me. But I would say my neurodivergence is the one that is most present for me in terms of how it shows up and and influences how I look at the world more than anything mm. else. Mm. I know that. Um, so another form of respect is attention and that's about quietly, very attentively listening. And I've heard from, and, and for all of these, it's 
no, there is no be all seven forms of respect or that they're all good or they're all bad. It's just, it just is. It's like people deciding to prioritize if these are the ones I prioritize and these are the ones that I don't prioritize. And what I've heard for people with ADHD and attention is like, I can't. It's like, yeah, then that's part of, that is something that that's a, a pretty decent reason as to why you don't prioritize it. That right? is interesting though, because for, I, I would say my experience and and one of the things about ADHD and or, or really any neurodivergence that I think we often get kind of, I don't want to say get wrong, but I think we fall into the trap of is that we kind of label it and box it up as if it's a thing rather than mm -hmm. literally just every person's unique experience of it. Mm -hmm. So my unique experience of ADHD is that I give my full overwhelming attention mm. to things that matter to me and the things that I'm disinterested in, you, you like really have to like, you have to like sit me down and like duct tape my arms to the chair for me to even half pay attention. So, you know, for me, attention, um, is a function of passion. It's a, a function of care. And I was thinking back to, as you were saying about the seven uh, forms of respect and you had said procedure. And I was, it, what's been spinning in the back of my head as we've been talking is that I think for all of these forms that you've mentioned so far, there's almost a precondition for any of them to exist. So for <laughs> attention, for procedure, for any of those, if I felt that the other person that we're talking about and, and there's like the, the mutual respect cares about me, that there's trust between us and that they make it safe for me because we respect each other's boundaries and we, we respect each other as individuals, though, as long as those preconditions are there, I'm actually able to fall into any of those forms of respect. I I will I will pay deference to someone else if I know that they care about me and that there's trust there and that they're going to make it safe for me. I will allow them to take the lead on something and I will listen and follow their guidance and leadership. But those preconditions have to be there. They don't develop after the fact. It's not like they get the respect and then I discover that there's care, trust, and safety and those things. Those are my preconditions. And those are the three pillars of lovable leadership in my book. And I think that th that's partly... The, the kind of the key that unlocks everything for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I actually think it's it's something of a chicken or an egg because for some people it's like, no, I have to have these certain behaviors that you're showing me respect in the ways that matter to me so that I can, so that I can trust you. And for others, it's like, well, I know I need to trust you before I can show you these behaviors that I know matter to you. Right. And so it's, it's, uh, and it's really about kind of having that language of like, oh, well, what, what, what do, how do we show respect to one another? And the first part is I have to ask myself, how do I want it? Because I think that we're all capable of flexing, right? I mean, kind of where you at, like, if I, if there's a precondition of trust, then I can, I can, what I heard you say, Jeff was flex, right? Like if I know that that person wants that procedure and, and it mattered to your dad to follow the certain expectations, it's like, maybe you wouldn't give that to other people, but you would because, because you knew it mattered to him, right? And so, exactly. um, and so we're all able to flex. And so it's not, I don't think of it as being rigid. I actually think of respect as being quite dynamic. And it's about being able to name, huh, what is happening here? Why is it that I'll do this thing with my with my um, parent, but not with my teacher, not with my restaurant manager, even though they're asking me the same thing. They could be asking me the same thing, but actually whatever those other feelings are, that trust um, can actually change the um, change our expectations around that. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. That resonates. Um, and just the idea of there being like a, a single form of respect, or even that somebody feels like this is the way that I perceive respect, or this is the way I want respect. Again, like for me, I, I think of it as treating each person as an individual. If 
if I see an individual, if I have a relationship with an individual and I have all of those preconditions there, I'm willing to give them respect in whatever way that they desire it. But if there's somebody there who I don't feel those things for, I won't even give them the respect in the ways that I'm comfortable giving respect because mm -hmm. there's just not respect there, right? Mm -hmm. I'm willing to go probably through any of the seven and, mm -hmm. and bend and contort myself to show respect to another person, but it has to have the preconditions that I need there that I feel like they're a person that's worthy of me stepping outside of my own comfort zone or ways of expressing respect or kindness or love or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So there's something, when I was doing research for my book, I'd ask people, how do you want to be treated? And they said, with respect. And then I said, what does respect look like? And they would talk about the golden rule. And so then I have what I call the rubber band rule. And so with the rubber band rule, it shows that we're actually, we're actually able to flex, right? We're able to stretch and accommodate other people. And so what you're just describing, hey, I can actually, even if it doesn't matter to me, all I can do it, I can stretch. What we also find is we can also, there are some things that even no matter how much I like that person, I'm going to snap. I'm about to, you know, and that could be in the, that could be an individual relationship that can be in a team. So Jeff, for you, what, what actually makes you snap? What were you like? Oh, I cannot, even if, even no matter how much I love the person, oh, if I have to keep doing this, maybe I could do it a couple of times. I will just snap. So maybe it's what you get. It's, it could be something you give or something you get that you just don't want to get, or you don't want to give. I think I have a very low tolerance or threshold for being able to maintain consistent output of any sort. Mm -hmm. So like if there's an expectation that I'm going to do something consistently for any period of time, I just, if I have to force it, uh, eventually I'll hit a point where I'm just going to snap and be like, I can't do this anymore because I'm just not built for it. Right. So it's the muscle that I need to be able to do that is weak. Uh, I'm not built for slow, steady wins the race. I'm, I'm quick, short. Can you places. give an example, please? Yeah. So like if somebody said, you know, the way that you would show me respect is by answering my emails each day, you know, mm. within two hours, I'd be like, mm -hmm. no, I love mm -hmm. you, but no, like it would require me to reorient my entire life. And it would literally sacrifice full days for me to implement a way of being able to accommodate that. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to accommodate it. Mm -hmm. Sorry. That that's, that's stepping over one of my boundaries, which is like, I know what I need to be able to thrive and feel safe and feel comfortable and, and excel. And if you're asking me to shatter that just so that you can have something that I don't even perceive as very important, um, then no, we can't do that. So I, I think the challenge is, is that like, um, I, I guess if I look at like what's underneath that, aside from the fact that like, I know myself and I know what I'm good at, what I'm not good at. And, and I'm, I know where I'm willing to flex because I can do it versus where I can't. I think it's about aligned goals, right? Like if if it's something that we both agree we both want, that's something where maybe I would be willing to flex for a period of time and be open about like what I could do. But if it's something that just you want, like again, we're back to the hierarchy. We're back to mm -hmm. the one way. If if there's ever a scenario where there's a two way and we both want it and we both respect one another's boundaries and we we come to an agreement, that's something I can honor. So what makes me snap, it always comes back to some form of autonomy. So mm -hmm, I, I mm -hmm. need to have my full autonomy to agree to something, disagree to something, et cetera, and have those boundaries respected and be able to choose how I'm going to do a thing because that's how I know I will, I will show up. And that's how I can hold myself accountable. I can't hold myself accountable to somebody else's expectations. They, I can only hold myself accountable to my own expectations. So what would make me snap is if someone insisted against me being very open and very self-aware about my, about what I'm good at, what I'm not, how I can operate best. And they insisted that I do it their way. Mm -hmm. it, it would just immediately cause me to snap and shatter. I, I just don't work that way. 
Mm -hmm. I can already tell that you probably have more of an allergic reaction or like a deprioritizing of the procedure because with the procedure form of respect, it's, uh, so for those who like it, it's like, Hey, I get respect. I feel respected when you do things the way I asked you to do it. And for other people who don't care about it, it's like, as long as the outcomes are done, I don't care how you do it. Oh yeah. I'm a hundred percent. So like with every team member I have ever worked with ever throughout my entire life, procedure has been completely irrelevant. Mm -hmm. I'm really good at designing procedures and plans and sequences because I see patterns very well. So I'm very good at designing a process, but I don't need someone to follow that process. In fact, improve it, do it better. Mm -hmm. I don't care. As long as I'm just giving you the way I've done it, I know it's very efficient, but if you can do it better or faster, have at it. Like, I don't mm -hmm. need you to do it my way. There is, I have almost like, if there was a scale of that, I'd probably be at like a zero or maybe a one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Cause for some people it's like, no, I, I, I will feel respected when and heard when you did it the way that I asked you to do it. And you can see that, right, Jeff? Because like yeah. there's some people are like, I need that. And it's just like, okay. But like to your point, it's like, I can't, that's going to make me snap. Yeah. Well, what's interesting also is you're saying that I'm thinking I would forget. Like, so my short-term memory, like my ability to hold what I told you to do in a process anyway, mm -hmm. is it's like 30 seconds long. I'll be on a call with someone and we'll be doing coaching or something. And I'll say something and they're like, that was brilliant. Say it again. I'm like, nope can't do it. Like it's just, it's not there anymore. So if I were to design a process and tell someone to do it, they could come back the next day and say, I did it exactly as you said, and they could do it a completely different way. And I might not even remember what I told them. So the other thing is that I don't even have an enforcement or accountability mechanism for the process side of things, because I just move on to the next thing. It's like with ideas, I have so many, I don't get attached to many of them. I just go on to the next one. So Jeff, when you are working with a new client or a new employee, do you tell them this? Do you say, Hey, this is my expectation. This is what you can, uh, this is, this is how I, uh, this is not going to be important to me. This is important to me. hundred percent. I do this. So I, I actually give every person I work with a user guide. It's like the mm. Jeff Gibbard user guide. Here's my rocket fuel. Here are my triggers. Here's my superpowers. Here are my biggest weaknesses. Here are my greatest fears. I give them the full, here is Jeff. Here's mm -hmm. what you can expect of him. Here's how I will be masterful. Here's where I am absolutely terrible. So all out on the table, because I believe that for me, at least a sign of respect is giving people all of the information they need to make the decisions, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm never going to lie to someone. I have a very, very um, hard line on honesty. And because of that, I give everyone all of the information transparently and openly. Here's how to work with me. And as a result, then I don't feel like I'm ever setting false expectations for people. Uh, and if somebody comes back and they say, well, you never told me that I would update and, and, and make my guide more comprehensive to include that thing. So yeah, I, uh, I give people a full user guide of how to work with me, how I like to be communicated with, like literally down to like how to bring me problems, how to, how to, you know, offer solutions, you know, tone of voice, even like mm -hmm. I, here, here's how I work. Mm, how long do you think it took you to get to that level of self-awareness? Uh, I'm 43 now. So I don't know, maybe like 30 years, um, I mean, <laughs> like really, because I, I think it's, it's a slow and steady work in progress. It's a lot of noticing things like, Oh, that's mm -hmm. interesting. I do this or, Oh, that's interesting. I I'm really consistently bad at this or, Oh, that's interesting. That's a thing that sets me off. Why does that set me off? Um, I've also taken every single form of, um, like assessment for myself and every sort of, you know, personality assessment, this, that, and the other thing to help inform like who I am and how do I operate? What are my tendencies? And I don't take them as like dogma, but there's always something interesting in them, whether it's the Enneagram or disc or Myers-Briggs or any of that, you know, I look at all of them and I'm like, what resonated? What's useful? And I pull that out and I add it to my guide. Mm. 
So uh, we think about respect in terms of layers, especially in an organization. So the analogy I like to use is that of language. So if you were to talk about your company, right, then the, the, as the organization, and then you're, a, you're the CEO of it. And so people are looking at you and they're like, oh, how does Jeff, what are the norms for respect? How is Jeff modeling respect? Right. And so they're kind of following that. And that's the national language. And then there are all these different departments. Maybe I know you have different product lines. Right. So here's this product line versus that product line. And maybe you have people who are the heads of 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 those particular products. And so they also have their own particular preferences. And so I, I liken that to regional dialects. And then there's just the individual who's like, oh, okay, well, I have my own priorities. And I know that if I go over this team versus that team, they will have different priorities, different, the, the different regional dialects. And people who do best in an organization are those who are multilingual. Like even just going back to, you know, going from your mom's dad to your dad's uh, mom's to your dad's house. So um, how would you describe, I mean, because whether you realize it or not, you are you are consciously or unconsciously setting your the norms at your company. Yeah. So, how would one of your employees describe the uh, how respect is shown at um, at your company? God, I you know I I would love to say that I know, but I don't think I do. You know, I know how I treat people. I don't know how it's received. Mm. Um, I know how people treat me and I, I know how I try to react to things. So like there's, I only have my interpretation of things. Mm -hmm. And I think if I were to look at everything through the lens of what my intent is, I would probably give rose colored answers to everything, mm -hmm. but I don't know. And, and honestly, one of the things that I think hopefully helps keeping, helps keep me improving as a leader and as, you know, somebody setting an example is that I'm constantly assessing myself. I'm constantly trying to check in and make sure how people are doing. And it's tough because even though I'm not a person who tries to enforce hierarchy or authority, it naturally is present in mm -hmm. organizations. And I try really hard to get everybody on the same level. And I try really hard for people to not feel intimidated to speak their mind or share something that's uncomfortable or anything like that. I try to create a space for it no matter how much I want to, it isn't always going to work. So it's tough to say. It really is. Um, I like to think that I'm fairly multilingual and fairly uh, empathetic and and understanding. And I, I like to think I'm the sort of person that people could come to, but I also only know what it's like to be me. And I, I don't know how other people are going to react to the way I do things because, you know, when I speak about things, it could be taken as he really believes this. It all could be. It also could be taken by some people as like, oh, well, that's performative or that's this or it's that, right? So I don't know how it comes across. I only know how I intend it. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't have a good answer to it because I, I feel like I'm unfortunately kind of locked into my own perception of it. And then what may be um, colored perceptions of the actual interactions when I seek feedback. Like, I don't know if I'm actually... Um, it's sort of like, what's that whole thing about? Like when you observe an atom, it changes states, right? So it's like by having that conversation and inviting it, I don't necessarily know if I'm getting what's really at the core of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know that when I, uh, when I facilitate and guide this conversation for teams, I will poll people, anonymous polling on what are the, what would they rank as the top three forms of respect that are currently being practiced on the team? And what I always love to see is the reaction from the leader. It's like, oh, look at that. They're 
they also happen to be mine. <laughs> like, and it's just like, why do you think that is? <laughs> why do you think that the ones that are currently being practiced are also happens to be the leaders? And so it does kind of take, oh, that I'm influencing people in these ways. And then, and then we take them through a conversation of, well, considering the nature of your work, which is, you know, your work, your creative work, Jeff, really different from when you were working in the restaurant industry, right? Mm-hmm. Considering the nature of the work, then what do you think are the forms of respect that you need to practice with each other to uphold that work? Because then we try to take people, separate people from what is the leader's personal preferences to like yeah. actually what supports the shared work. And so that could be an interesting way to, um, if you were to kind of just everyone write it down, just how, oh, what do we, what do we think is the the current ones? And then you can see like, oh, how does that compare to what yours are personally? Um, so you said, oh, you talked about hierarchy and you, I know you, you're like, oh, you don't, uh, that you don't, you try for things to be equal. And I actually have a different take on hierarchy. I think of hierarchy as very clear. And actually, even in Vietnamese, hierarchy is embedded in the Vietnamese language. I am mm-hmm. always who I am in relationship to someone else. Mm. I'm always younger, or older, or it's whatever that is. similar in Chinese, too. My, yes. my wife is Chinese. And, and there's a different word for like every type of aunt, uncle, cousin, et cetera, based upon relationship to the person that's saying it. Yes. And so that has influenced how I think about how I think about respect. And so for yeah. me, hierarchy is just clarity. I don't think of it as this good or bad. I actually think of it as clarity because like, oh, well, someone's going to make the decision. And now we know who is making the decision. Because I actually, what we find in companies is sometimes there's this lack of clarity, right? And the leader will be like, hey, I want everyone's opinion. What do you think we should do? But I'm going to make the final decision. And then people get really confused because they were like, they confuse like get it giving input with getting to like vote. And it's and it's actually not a democracy. The, this is the leaders- super interesting as a concept. I, I <laughs> So my take on that is that I think that we actually have multi-intersecting hierarchies in our company. Mm-hmm. So it's based upon like uh, what we call like your genius zone, right? There are certain, there are so many things in our company that I default, I defer every decision to my partner because mm-hmm. I know she's going to make a better decision than me because of the lane that we're in. And everybody knows there's certain things that are like my lane. And then there's other things that we give to other members of our team. So we think of, I think, hierarchy in terms of whose lane is it based on mm-hmm. their area of expertise. So it's interesting when you look at it in terms of like who has the authority or the um, who's been given like the uh, responsibility of making the decision. I think we do have hierarchies. I I tend to relate to hierarchy in a different way. I tend to think of it more in terms of like, you know, like white supremacy, patriarchy, like uh, you know, inappropriate sort of like uh, uh, dominance uh, models, mm-hmm. whereas hierarchy can just be a structure that explains who makes what decisions. Yeah, because I mean, what we see when we pull uh, organizations on, hey, what causes misalignment around understanding and respect here? One of the things that come up a lot is lack of clarity from leadership. And that can come of like every every voice, everything is everyone, everyone you know, we want to take in everyone's input and meld it into this big blobby blob. And I always tell people one thing that will always be true is you will, <laughs> we will never have every, make everyone happy at the same time. Totally. Yeah. And that like, just because you didn't get what you want, doesn't mean you weren't heard. Yeah. That and makes so, sense. and so, and so, yes. And what you're saying, like, well, for you and your company issues, you have these fears of like, okay, this is where 
your um, this person makes the decisions and this is where this person makes the decision. And it sounds like there's a lot of clarity there. We are very communicative and open about it. And as you were talking about the hierarchy and um, you had mentioned the forms of respect that like when people start bringing it up, oh, they're all like the leaders. I began thinking about how I'm very, um, very opinionated about mm -hmm. kind of how I see um, what, a, what a good business structure might look like and, and what type of environment would make people feel seen and connected and, um, you know, um, respected and all of those sorts of things. But I immediately began thinking, I wonder if some people actually crave more hierarchy and structure. Maybe some mm -hmm. people just actually want to be told what to do. But I have a blind spot for that because to me, I have like an allergic reaction to it. Like the idea of being told what to do, mm -hmm. like I would almost need someone to tell me to tell mm -hmm. them what to do. And in, in that case, I'm usually fine with it. But like just to blurt right out and like give people directions is more uncomfortable for me unless it's in one of those predefined things where it's like, this is an area where Jeff is the top dog. Like this is where Jeff makes decisions. And then the rest of them, like, you know, business part makes decisions or one of our other teammates makes decisions. So Jeff, you just went back to the golden rule, treat people the way you want to be treated. <laughs> so so in, Yeah, which is funny because I, <laughs> I actually uh, I actually try to treat people the way they want to be treated. Mm -hmm. That's like my rule is like, mm -hmm. I don't want to treat people the way I want to be treated, even though I behave the way I want to be treated. But, but we I, can't help ourselves. That's my yeah, point there, right? The, yeah, we can't help so ourselves, weird. right? Because even like, you know, for you, it's just like, I want to give people all this freedom. I don't want to like tell them what to do, right? Because I don't want to be told what to do, Yeah, right? And yet for some people, it's like, make up your mind. I'm waiting for you to be a leader and to, to make some decisions here, right? Like, But isn't that about the, have some... the, the definition of leader and how we relate to it, right? So because if they, <laughs> if somebody said to me, like, I want you to make the decision, I have zero problem with that. Mm -hmm. What I have a problem with is, is imposing on somebody else. But if somebody invites it, if I have permission, if I have consent for someone, like if somebody was like, I literally just want you to tell me what to do every single day for every part of my job. I just want you to tell me what to do. I'd be like, got it. That's what the expectation is now. So now I'm not overstepping your boundaries. You've been clear about what your boundaries are, what you're, what you want. So I think for me, that's like the real piece of it is like respecting what their boundaries and, and, and wants and, and needs are. And then, but that actually even requires you saying, hey, I will tell you what to do if you tell me that you that's what you want. There's this gray area of you expecting them to know, whereas they could just be, that's what a leader does. I don't understand, right? Yeah. There's not even like, why would I even need to say it? <laughs> because that's their expectation, right? Yeah. And so this is, this is where all of our, we have all of these different expectations. And this is why I think it's seven forms of respect as a, tool to spark curiosity to kind of slow down and say like, huh, if I feel that I'm, cause usually what happens is like, if I feel I'm being disrespected, then I'm thinking about how that person wronged me. I'm not thinking about why I feel wronged. So this is my last question for you, Jeff. I like to uh, differentiate between disrespect and lack of respect. Mm. And disrespect is intentional. Yes. Right? Like, Jeff, I know that you hate being told what to do and I did it anyway, right? That's disrespectful because yep. I know that now. Like, you've told me that very clearly. And yet, if I didn't know that and I just said, hey, Jeff, can you do this, this, and this in this way, right? And then maybe it's like kind of irritating you, but maybe, well, Julie doesn't know that. That irritates me. So that's lack of respect in the forms that matter. And, and also what could happen is maybe sometimes we don't tell people or we even say it's okay. We even say it's okay. So I think about this, I think happens a lot in punctuality. It's okay that you're late. Not a big deal. 
And inside I'm seething. I'm so upset. And yet what happens over time, I, I actually saw this when we did this with the team once, uh, we had people guess each other's forms of respect. And this one person put punctuality when he said it for himself, punctuality is really important. No one guessed that for him. And do you know why? Because he's always late. No, because he's always like, it's not a big deal that you're late. Mm. Not a big deal. So over time, people are like, oh, well, I'm going to have to be late somewhere. Well, he never minds. He never makes any expression. He seems to be okay with it. And inside he's like seething, right? And he's going to snap, but he's like, and so in any case, my question for you, Jeff, is because the point of like this disrespect, the differentiation between disrespect versus lack of respect is to help people slow down and say, okay, was this intentional or was this actually a, was this actually a time of just a lack of respect? And so I just want to, sharing that difference for you, does that spark anything of like, oh, a time where maybe I misinterpreted something as disrespectful, but it was actually lack of respect or some a time when you were mis misunderstood as like someone thought you were being intentional about it. And actually you just didn't know. That's like, you just, I feel like you opened up a gigantic can, like can of worms because so th there's several things that immediately occurred to me. One, I don't think I've ever disrespected. No, let me say it again. I generally would not say I've ever felt disrespected. Mm -hmm. um, generally speaking, I think more often than not, I would give people the benefit of the doubt and think of it as lack of respect. Because if I've been very, very clear with someone and then they do it anyway, um, I, I can't remember too many times where it's happened, but if it did, it probably escalated really quickly and was like super ugly, um, mm -hmm. especially given my forms of respect. So I guess more often than not, I, I would be always be willing to chalk it up to a lack of respect that somebody didn't know. And I'm very good at like saying, Hey, just here's where my boundaries are. Here's kind of what's important to me. Here's what, like, so I don't think I've had too many instances of disrespect in my life coming my way. I would say on my side, um, I probably disrespect the hell out of a lot of people. And that's probably because they're people that didn't have those preconditions where I would respect them in the first place. So I have definitely disrespected a oh, lot because, of people. And you knew it and you knew it. Because, because I didn't because care. Didn't I was like, because yeah, you yeah. didn't mm -hmm. earn it. You didn't mm -hmm. you think you're entitled to my respect, but you're not. Mm -hmm. So take that. Right. So mm -hmm. there was definitely a lot of just for anybody that I care about, it would never be disrespect. Mm -hmm. It would mm -hmm. like maybe once in a blue moon, cause I'm something's going on, but generally no, it would be lack of. And because as soon as someone updates my algorithm of how I run, of how they like to be treated, I think your example of punctuality is so relatable because it's something that we all fall somewhere on that spectrum. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I am chronically late to things if left unchecked. So mm -hmm. what do I do? I leave for everything early. I get to everything early. I have calendar appointments for everything. And the reason why is because I know some people think it's very disrespectful to be late. It does not matter to me one iota, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I know it matters to other people. And that's mm -hmm. why I show up places on time. And I especially do it for my wife because I know she gets super anxious about being places late. So we leave incredibly early for everything, right? So mm -hmm. it's such an interesting example. I wouldn't, yeah, yeah. So there's, there's probably just, yeah, there's, it's, it's, it's a matrix of things. I disrespect people that haven't earned my respect. And for anybody that has earned my respect, it would never be disrespect. It would only be a lack of respect out of not knowing. And I would immediately update my algorithm if they gave me any sort of uh, clue that I had done that. Mm. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for sharing your stories and your, your, uh, yeah, your stories and your memory. This has been shareable with, uh, with the guests with uh, Jeff Gibbard and it's shareable.
Awesome, awesome, awesome. So tell me, what was most valuable or useful for you in this episode? Send me a message or hit me up on social media. I'm easy to find, but there's links in the show notes just to make it easy. Seriously, I'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this episode, there's a couple things you could do, starting with subscribing to the show. And after that, head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate the show five stars and leave a review. Consider sharing this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. Or just buy me a latte or an old-fashioned by hitting up that tip jar. If you're looking for a good book to read, may I suggest The Lovable Leader, which covers how to build great teams with trust, respect, and kindness. It's built exclusively for brand new managers, and it's a handbook that will serve you well in your journey of leadership. Just search for Lovable Leader wherever books are sold online. And finally, if you're interested in working with me or checking out any of my other projects, go to jgibbard.com. That link, as well as every other link mentioned, will be found in the show notes. Stay safe, be kind, and seriously, share this episode with someone. I'll see you on the next episode of Shareable. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm.